Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For the better part of the last 12 years, I worked on college campuses with a um, campus ministry that was uh, national. I worked at UT, and then I worked on our national staff for about four and a half years, and um, working with college students is exciting and exhilarating on a number of different levels that we could talk about um, another time. But one of the things uh, that happens with college students when I was on campus is that I was regularly in conversations about a handful of things, it seems. And one of those handful of things was relationships. People often wanted to talk about relationships and specifically dating relationships and even more specifically dating relationships that might lead to marriage. And it was not uncommon for me to be sitting across a student, a guy or a girl, And they were trying to contemplate and discern, is this the one, right? And so they would ask, you know, me questions, and then I would ask them questions. And it was not uncommon for the person that was communicating to me, seeking discernment, to say something to the effect of, they would say things they liked about this other person, and then they would start to speak in very hopeful terms about this person. Well, you know, I know he's kind of like this now, but, you know, I think he will become more like this. Or she's really great in these ways right now. I struggle with these ways. But you know, I think as time moves on, as she gets older, these things that are concerning to me about her now will change. 
and I used to have essentially the same and constant refrain when I was talking to them, and I would say, you are marrying this person for who they are now. Like, this is who they are. You don't marry somebody for who you hope they will be. Of course, they never listened, right? Um, we didn't listen. If you're married, you, you, you probably thought the same thing, and now you know, right? That there is change, but that change is very gradual and slow, and it looks very much like one step forward, two steps back, both for them and you, and that's okay, Right? But it's very important in marriage not to marry an ideal, but to marry a reality. Not to marry what one would be like in the future, but to digest and receive and embrace what that person and who that person is now. Well, we do the same thing spiritually. We tend, I believe, much like the people in Jesus' day, to have a vision and a picture of Jesus that was not really based on reality. It was based on who they wanted Jesus to be and what they hoped Jesus would do for them. And Jesus would say things to them about who he really was, and even his closest friends would try to talk him out of what he was saying was true about him. Don't you always love it when people do that to you, by the way? No, 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 you don't really think that. No, 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 I really think this. No, no, that's not really true about you, Jesus. Peter, this is true about me. But they never really got it. And Luke 19 is another example, oddly. I don't know what your prior understanding of this historic passage of the triumphal entry is. But Luke 19, this narrative that is actually chronicled in all four Gospels, and the other Gospels, by the way, do mention Paul Branches. So we didn't just make up. I do think the church makes things up throughout time. Um, but the other three Gospelers, writers, uh, do mention Palm Branches. Luke only mentions sport coats here. Um, but what we see in this passage, in an overarching primary way, is that Christ is the King. But he's a king unlike any other king. Jesus is the king, but he is a king that's far different than what his people would want him to be. And I think something that we've got to digest and contemplate this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, is that Jesus is a king. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. But he is unlike the King, the Lord, and the Savior that we really want. It's hard for us to really see who He is, even as we see that His reign is primarily spiritual and eternal. We want His reign to be here and now, for it to be tangible, for it to be political even, right? Right? We want Jesus to be a Republican. Or we want Jesus to be a Democrat. Spoiler, he's neither. He's never heard of it. We want him to be an economic savior for us, right? We want him to be this voice of political reason 
in the Western American political process, right? We want Jesus to write op-eds in various papers, communicating particular points of view to persuade his political power or for him to deliver economically for us, right? We want Christ in many ways to be the king of Wall Street, to be the king of the stock market in our lives. We want Christ as a king to be conventional. Truth be told, we want him to be white. And we want him to be an American. And we want him to be conservative. And we want him to at least be middle class, but it'd be really better if he was maybe middle or upper class. That's what kind of king and savior we want because that's who so many of us are. But Christ in Luke 19 is here to lovingly disappoint us. Just like he lovingly disappointed the people of his day. Emily and I have enjoyed watching the Netflix series, The Crown. I gather a number of you have seen it. If you haven't, it's really fantastic, critically acclaimed and enjoyable to watch. We're still just in the first seasons. And one of the things that's very clear from the very beginning with The Crown as this shows the beginning days of Queen Elizabeth, that there is this constant tension between the historic monarchy, which is actually historically in England, synonymous essentially with God Himself, which is interesting, and then the people, and particularly the people of a new day and a new time, and the progressiveness of culture, and there is this tension between the historicity of the monarchy and the progressiveness of the people. And she, as a monarch, is having to live in this tension. Will Christ, too, in a much more profound and deep way, lived with this tension? This tension of who he was historically, who he was theologically, and what his people and other people and the culture wanted him to be. And what we see is... They didn't like him. Dostoevsky writes about this in his classic work, The Brothers Karamazov, when in the middle, Ivan writes a poem entitled The Grand Inquisitor that happens in 16th century Spain where Jesus is alive and well and Jesus is doing his thing. He's preaching, he's doing miraculous works and acts and then a cardinal shows up. The cardinal is the grand inquisitor, and the cardinal and the people have Jesus, whom they say to worship and follow and love and give their lives to, they have Jesus put in jail. Because who Jesus is in Ivan's poem, the grand inquisitor, is at odds with who the church says he is. And so they put him in jail. I wonder parabolically and metaphorically if we don't do the same thing. I know our culture at large has, but it's not just the culture at large. It's us as well. Jesus is not palatable to us. And so we metaphorically or parabolically put him in jail because it gives us greater security. Let's look in more detail about Christ's kingship and his rule and his reign 
in Luke 19. I want to look at it in two main ways. I want us to look at the act itself of this entry, and then I want us to look at the response to the act of Christ's entry. The first thing we see about the act itself in this narrative is that it's a fulfillment of prophecy. This is a prophetic act. Zechariah chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 from the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and they shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This act is a prophetic act. Christ rides a donkey because the Father prophesied through Zechariah in the Old Testament that He would do so. And so He does. This is prophecy fulfilled. Not only do we see this act is prophetic, we also see this act is parabolic. The fact that Christ rides a donkey means something. You know, we all, whether we like this or not, what we drive tells us something about who we are, right? And in fact, what we drive and the state of what we drive communicates a lot about what position we are in in life. Not only economically, Right, but even just like age and stage of life. Right, there's a reciprocal relationship to how many French fries are on your floorboard to what age your kids are, right? Or how many kids you have. And that's true today that that which transports us says something, whether we like it or not, about us. Well, that was true in Christ's day as well. And this act can't help but to be seen as a parabolic act. Because you see, it would have been very conventional and common in this situation for a triumphal or triumphant entry of a king entering a city to be riding a stallion, right? Not a young colt or a donkey. It's almost humorous. People are excited, people are praising, and then, you know, you got to gather the, the, the crowd's large enough that not everybody sees Jesus at first. But what would it have been like to be in that crowd, to be praising, to be excited? Here comes Christ, here He comes, He's going to be political, He's going to be economic, He's going to fulfill our wildest American, or in their time, Jewish dreams. And then when they catch a view of Him, and He's on a donkey, they had to start scratching their heads at that moment, right? Like it's a little bit like, oh, um, hmm, that's strange. Not, not quite what we were imagining, not quite what we were picturing. So this act was not only prophetic, but it was also parabolic. And it was also peaceful. It's really interest, interesting the way that he enters this scene. He enters this scene with humility. Humble and riding on a donkey. Riding a humble means of transport. Carrying with himself this inherent peace and humility. What power is there in that? 
Napoleon actually famously said and had an understanding of this power through peace when he said this about Christ. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. You see this empire being founded upon humility and peace and love in this act of this entrance into Jerusalem. But we also see Christ act as one that is problematic. I've alluded to that already, one that is controversial, one that is very unconventional. And he was fine with it. He wanted it like this. He embraced it. You remember what I said prior to reading the text, that Christ was the consummate finisher. He finished well. And here he does so in a way that is controversial and even problematic. I read and was reminded just this week of Martin Luther King Jr.'s words that are at the front of your bulletin. And I put these at the front of your bulletin, not so much because this is true about us, because we would have to confess that it's not true about us. But I put this for us to reflect upon because this is true about Jesus. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, because Christ at this moment is moving as far away from comfort and convenience as one could imagine ever. But where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Here, in the midst of challenge and controversy, Christ is fulfilling a prophetic vision and act, and he's doing so peaceably as he rides into the city, as he rides into his death, finishing well on a donkey. This is confusing. It's also resolute. How tempting would it be for Christ to acquiesce, by the way, to the people's desires? How tempting would it be to actually exercise the power that he had and drop the hammer of judgment? To bring, it's not that he could not bring political rule and reign, it's not that he could not open the gates economically for society and for his people. It's that he's willfully choosing not to. He is not a modern day king or politician or even religious leader that has temptation to acquiesce to the people. There's a columnist for the New York Times that I like to read a lot. His name is Ross Dudat. And he wrote an article about Pope Francis two weeks ago in the Sunday Review because he's writing a book on Francis. And he talks about the oddness of the conversations that he's regularly having with people as, he, as people find out he's writing a book on the present 
Pope. And by the way, let me give a disclaimer. I'm not making an assertion or a commentary, definitely not politically, on his papacy or even the Pope individually as a human. I think you'll see what point I'm making, but I'll communicate what do that writes about the Pope. But he talks about the awkwardness of being in conversations with people when they found out he's writing a book on Pope Francis. He said, oh, that must be amazing to be writing on him. Oh, what a great task. Oh, he's transformed this. He's transformed that. And, and the reason it feels tenuous to Ross do that is it's not all in all a favorable book. He actually writes with a pretty critical eye of this particular pope and his papacy. He concedes the belovedness of the current pope, yet also writes about some of the controversial nature of this pope. And he boils it down to two things, and I'll tell you one to make our point. In his opinion, this pope has blurred the lines between doctrinal integrity and pastoral practice. He has blurred the lines between the historic, moral, and ethical beliefs of the church and acquiesced into particularly ethically in things like sexuality and do that's position. He's acquiesced to the pleas of the people. Now, whether he's right or wrong is not for me to judge. What I do know is that it's a temptation for every leader to acquiesce to the people. To make one statement that is doctrinally pure and true and then to pastorally practice something that is contradictory to that doctrine. I personally am tempted to this easily, especially in hard issues, culturally speaking, in our day. And what I want us to see is that Christ did not do so. Christ held fast to doctrine and to practice. Before we move on to the response of him doing this, I have one question. How did he do this? How did he perform this act that was prophetic and that was peaceful and that was parabolic and that was problematic? How did he do it? Do you remember our very first lesson or sermon in revealing Jesus? It was Christ's baptism. Do you remember the affirmation that Christ had at the beginning of his public ministry? This is my son. With him, I am well pleased. And what we reflected upon is that Christ found his ultimate and core identity in that statement. And resting in the Father's love and embrace. And that the Father's affirmation took away the need for other people's affirmation. And it liberated him to be bold. And to not seek comfort. So he rested in this affirmation of the Father. And then he also rested in this assertion that we looked at just a few weeks ago, that apart from the Father, he could do nothing. He rested in his dependence. So he rested in the Father's affirmation and identity, and he rested in his dependence of the Father. And with that, it gave him strength. Of course, there's application to us. Not only are we supposed to marvel at Christ in this setting, we too can take this end to ourselves. What does it look like for us to stand firm in a culture that is extremely confused on a number of different levels. What does it look like for us to stand firm 
in our families, in our workplaces? What does it look like to hold fast to not that which is comfortable, but that which is true and right, that which is biblical and moral and ethical? How? We can't do so moralistically. We can't do so legalistically. We can't do so with Nike Christianity. Just do it. Just try harder, right? We can do so in the way that Christ did it, finding our affirmation ultimately in the Father daily, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. This is my son. Fill in your name, my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. It's very liberating to believe that. And then also to depend upon the Father. We see Christ doing this. Well, the second larger point, and more briefly, is what was the response to this? So Christ enters this act as he enters the city to establish his kingship. And there's three different responses from three different people groups. His disciples, the Jews, praise him. They praise him in the way that he was praised in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 to quote, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now, their definition of success is where it gets interesting. We've alluded to that already. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. These were genuine and legitimate praises. They were also ill-informed and even at times clueless praises. So much so, the genuineness of these praises would be exposed by some, not all, just a short time later when those who were saying, Hosanna, just a few days later, would be saying, crucify Him. As a side note, That's not dissimilar to us, is it? There are some moments, I don't know, when you're reading your Bible, when you're here at church, when you're praying, when you calmly respond to your kids' chaos. Those are Hosanna moments. There are plenty of other moments that are crucify Him moments. In our lives that I don't have to detail for you, right? We, once again, unfortunately in this case, are just like them. We don't know what we're talking about. We misunderstand. And so we're saying praise Him. Because even at this moment, many of those who were screaming Hosanna really still thought political rule and reign now. Economic growth and development now. Places of position now. The American dream now. Yes, we're ready. Hosanna, praise Him. But He is on a donkey. And the corner does start to turn. And so now, even me as one of His closest friends, Peter could conclude, I don't even know Him. Just a few days later. So we can say one response was. Air quotes would be appropriate here. Praise. Another response was anger. The Pharisees are pretty good at this by the way. You know you're you're a Pharisee if. A primary emotion that you vibe. Is contempt. Here they are again. Just every corner. They're irritated at something. 
One commentator, Frederick Bruner, refers to them consistently as the serious party. Well, guess what? When you're real serious, you're real angry. Like, really all the time. And of course, in this setting, they're just angry. They, they don't actually even discern or know that these praises that are going out are wrong and ill-informed and convoluted. They're just frustrated that they're praising, and Jesus actually acknowledges them and says, that's fine, even if they are quiet. The stones will praise me. In which, by the way, I don't need people or stones to praise me. Refer to Mark 1, I've got my Father's praise. And so I don't care. However, I can make the stones praise me if I want. They're just angry. And then the third response is from Jesus himself. And the reason we're looking at Luke's account of this is Luke's the only one that mentions this. When Christ enters this scene and he sees it, which once again, historically many, if you've grown up in the church, at least this is how I did, understood this is nothing but a celebration, nothing but a Hosanna. And the donkey thing always confused me and other parts of it always confused me. And then when I read Luke and I read that in verse 41, Jesus wept, I thought, I might be misunderstanding what's going on here. Because this was not like weeping at a wedding, right? This was not tears of joy. This was weeping not dissimilar to what we looked at last week in John 11, when Christ wept over the tomb of his best friend, one of his best friends, Lazarus. Jesus weeps. We don't know for sure exactly what he was weeping over. I'll give you two things that I think are both theologically and biblically plausible. One thing he weeps over is what we just referred to. These people don't get it. Like, even the closest people to me don't get it. And interestingly enough, because he's more emotionally astute than we are, instead of getting angry, he's sad. Oh, if that could only be me in my life, that's a whole other sermon. But he's just sad that people don't get it. And he's also sad because he knows the fate that Jerusalem will experience 30-something years later, when they fall to ruins in AD 70. And he's sad about it. What an appropriate response. Jesus, once again, of course, has the best response to this act of all. The Jews praise, the Pharisees are angry, and Jesus simply weeps. And that weeping, by the way, only intensifies between this day and Friday for him. So we see this act that Christ has put before us. We see this response, and I want to end with this thought. There will be another triumphant entry. The Scriptures tell us that this king will return and I want to leave us contemplating what the return of the king will be like the second time. Starting with the fact that he won't be on a donkey. Starting with the fact while he still will embody humility and peace, when he comes again, it won't feel the same way it does in Luke 19. When Christ comes again, Revelation tells us that he will be riding a white horse. 
And kind of like no other, except maybe John himself, which we will read as well, another John goes by Johnny Cash, writes about the return of the king in the title track of his album, When the Man Comes Around. This is one of the last songs Cash wrote and recorded prior to his death. I don't know if you've ever heard it. But it starts with a raspy, old voice speaking, saying this. I can't imitate him. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And then he starts to sing this. There's a man going around taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and each sup. Will you partake of the last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Hear the trumpets. Hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices crying. Voices calling. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega, and and Omega's kingdom come. Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne, and at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings. Lord of lords. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your sending your son, Jesus, the first time. Thank you for that entry, which we refer to as triumphant or triumphal. We pray that you'd give us a better understanding of who you are, Jesus. Forgive us for making you in our own image. We also pray, Jesus, for your return. We look forward to a different mode of transportation. We look forward to a different experience. We look forward to you calling us home and we look forward to you coming. 
with power and might as the King of kings and the Lord of lords with no controversy and no confusion and full clarity and freedom. We pray with John, come quickly. Amen.